Hey everybody, welcome to the Build in Public podcast. I'm your host, KP, and on this show, I interview world-class entrepreneurs, ambitious startup founders, creators, and builders on the internet who are boldly building the future in public. This podcast is my excuse to take you all on a curious journey to understand, learn, and hopefully be inspired by the worldviews, insights, and stories of these fabulous people changing the world. So far, I've gotten the rare privilege to sit down with incredible guests like Gary Vee, Alexis Ohanian, Kat Cole, Sahil Levingia, and many more leaders. So check out the full podcast listing at buildingpublicpodcast.com. Now buckle up and get ready for our latest episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to yet another episode of the Building Public Podcast. I'm your host, KP, and I am super thrilled to have Neil Tanidar joining us from Flint, Michigan. Neil, I just wanted to let you know how stoked I am to have you here. I've been meaning to get you on the show for at least six, seven months. And I think the post you made last week made the perfect sense and the perfect window for us to kind of open up and chat about, you know, what we're going to do together. So first of all, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. You want to give a quick round of, you know, introduction to what you've been up to. I know that you've been doing a lot, like I have your bio printed in front of me and it's like, it's got a lot of bullet points, but top of mind, 30 to 40 seconds, how would you describe yourself? Like what you've been doing the last three, four years? And then what are you, I guess, what's the big focus now? Yeah, so I think for the last like 13, 14 years, I've been really focused on being a scientist CEO. And so I've founded two companies, seen them now all the way from the very beginning to uh, the end of exits, right? And like seeing that process. And I was trying to think about what's next for me. And one of the places I looked at was if I was starting another startup as a scientist CEO, where would I go? And mm -hmm. I've just wanted to solve problems for the scientist CEO, right? Is there a way to make an accelerator or invest in those scientists earlier uh, is really been my passion. Yeah. And the, you, you just touched on the exits, right? And the latest exit I know you've you've been you know, biting my ear off about is, is Labdoor. Actually, tell the audience a little bit about how Labdoor story came about and, you know, kind of talk in terms of, I guess, inflection points, because it's a it's a long journey, you know, to now that you're almost at the exit level. So, yeah, like, yeah, give us a quick summary. Yeah, so this is an 11 plus year story, right? So in 2012, started Labdoor, I think, and Labdoor even started as an insight from my last startup. So the startup before mm -hmm. Labdoor, Avamine, we did product development and quality control for pharmaceutical supplements, cosmetics. And so from a Wait, B2B Was that the one you started with your dad? Yep, absolutely. Yes. And so, so, and so the, if we, can we, if we were kind of rewinding, the reason why I started my first business was because my dad lost all of his businesses in the 2008 recession. And so he had been a PhD chemist. He had quit his job in, when I was two years old, started a one person testing lab bootstrapped it uh, you know, in the 90s. Over a 10-year period, he got to a $3 million revenue business, about, I think, you know, 50 employees all himself. I wow. then started raising kind of Bank of America financing, not uh, venture capital financing, expanded in, and was doing very well, had a $100 plus million business. That all kind of basically came down in the 2008 recession. And mm -hmm. so he had a few bad quarters. The bank took the business, and that was it. And 
we were in 2010 trying to figure out like, how do we save the family business? Like, what do we do now? And mm. the idea was just like start a new testing lab. And so in 2010, we started a new testing lab in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I had just graduated. I started at first. He joined later. He moved to Michigan to join. And so at 21, I was a scientist CEO. And so they like, put me into that seat. The two of us started the business. Uh, it, you know, in a couple of years, it was 15 people and profitable, starting to scale. And that was when I did little things on the side. I was like learning to code. Code Academy was mm. uh, a thing in 2012. And I like I did the whole Code Academy program. Learned, like was trying to teach myself to code, trying to think about what was new or what was different. And that actually led me to doing a startup competition for my lab, Avemean, where I was able to pitch a lot of different successful entrepreneurs. And that's actually where I got to meet Mark Cuban. Mm. Uh, and that in the was the first time where I got to talk to him about what we did as a testing lab. And he was interested in this idea of, hey, is there any way to scale this data? Instead of doing it one company at a time, is there a, a more scaled way to do this? And it had been an idea that I had had for a long time, is that there should be a people's lab. If there's all these B2B labs in America, there's 9,000. You know, my dad ran one. I ran one. I knew that lab industry really well, but all the labs work for the companies. Right. There should be a lab that works for the people. And so that was the idea that started Labdoor in 2012. And so I had met a few people in, in Indianapolis during that startup competition that became my co-founders. We started and we've been working together uh, ever since. Right. And so we have kind of this strong co-founder structure. We all moved to San Francisco together, uh, lived and that's in. That's when you China. went to YC, correct? The lab door. No, so that was so we ended up going to YC a couple years later. So 2012, like end of 2012, we need like the first hundred thousand dollars to get started. Rock Health was actually an accelerator focused on digital health, and they were really focused on this first check for digital health when before digital health was really a thing. How right. Teco really made digital health a thing. And so that was where we got our first 100K that allowed us to actually move to San Francisco. We wow. found the cheapest place we could live in, which was basically a flop house in Chinatown. You know, like the bathrooms on the hall, you know, like wear wow. sandals to go to the bathroom kind of thing. And we just like worked all day, uh, worked most of the nights and just like got the first product shipped. And so it was just labdoor.com with the first couple categories. We had protein, energy drinks, and I think fish oil were the first three categories. And that was enough. The first hundred products, first three categories where we were able to raise our our seed round. And so that's actually where we went back to Mark Cuban and said, hey, you know, we've been working on this for a year. We did it. We did what we talked about. And that he invested the next $250,000 after Rock Health. And then we were able to, we built a business for a couple of years around, we had tested a few hundred products. We built a, a subscription around it. And then mm -hmm. we had the classic startup issue where we had to pivot. The subscription was working both uh, consumers were buying it and professionals were buying it. So nutritionists, doctors, we had this like nice cottage business, but it was actually one of the number of things happened, but a Tim Ferriss tweet where he actually tweeted about Labdoor and it just made our traffic spike one day. But then when people were asking him, hey, do you like Labdoor? Would you recommend Labdoor? He kept saying, I like it except for the paywall or like he was complaining about the paywall. And it was that was one thing that was always getting us stuck. I think the other thing that was getting us stuck is just this idea that we don't have a an open science like Labdoor's mission was always about open science. That's like mm -hmm. Labdoor was really the open, open science. Yeah. Right, the open door and then also the watchdog, the Labrador watchdog. And mm -hmm. I really think that there should be a consumer watchdog for everyone. Right, the data should be free and then we'll, we'll figure the business model around that. And so we changed the model in 2014, actually had it. The data is free. The rankings are free. And then we have 
a marketplace and certifications built around it now, where if you buy a Labdoor approved product or Labdoor certified product, we make a commission on those. And so it was right around that 2014 time where we figured out the business model, mm. where, where we pitched YC and almost like relaunched, where we kind of figured out the like the zero to one was done. We knew we had the site, the marketplace, the certifications, and then YC really helped us go one to end to scale at the next level. Right. It's fascinating. And also kind of like, you know, bringing us back from that inflection point to the last big numbers that I saw was what Labdoor was at 20 million users, right? 20 million plus users, yeah. 7 million plus in funding, I think over the years. It's crazy. It just blew up so big towards the end, right? Of course, 10 year overnight success story. Mm-hmm. By the way, my wife, when I mentioned Labdoor, it was the first time I was talking about you back, I don't know, when we first, you know, were DMing each other in 2019 or something. And I talked about all these other things and she was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, Labdoor. And she was like, oh yeah, I know Labdoor. Right. Mm-hmm. Apparently she's yeah. been like following, I guess, some of the workout, like a protein supplements, you know, people have been like talking about Labdoor ratings or something. I was like, oh, OK, I guess I, it's I, very I imagine our audience is it, that's something that I would notice. I was I would imagine our audience is in the hundreds of millions. Right. It's like yeah. for us to get like the tens of millions of users that are kind of coming back. Right. I think that's a big thing for us where it, this happens anywhere I go. Like if I go and I if someone asks me what I do, I say, oh, I work at Labdoor. Like <laughs> the frequency of which people actually recognize and, and say, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. I love Labdoor. I use Labdoor. The the brand awareness aspect of Labdoor is way bigger, you know, even if it's not captured in the signups and in the users, DAU and things like that. I think the awareness is way bigger, especially because I think a lot of influencers, celebrities, a lot of these uh, people, you know, they talk about this. Like you said, Tim Tim Ferriss, like they talk about the Labdoor rating or the Labdoor Mm -hmm. certification, that kind of thing. So, yeah. um, And that's fun. That's actually a fun part. It's a fun part of startups, really, right? It's like, like, I think that's an underrated part of like being a creator where we think of creating sometimes as this like the youtuber or the like other kind of celebrity right but there's a cool way where if you build a a really great scientific tech startup where you mm. can actually have that experience where you know i wear a lab door shirt down the street and people like recognize it and say recognize, Hi, and, like, yeah right and that's fun that's like it's a very fun part of being a founder yeah i mean i i can't imagine like you know like airbnb founders like uber founders like it's just like yeah. it's like people especially with b2c right that's one thing that you were yeah. saying earlier when you bring so many of these things that were initially locked up in the B2B world to a B2C world, yeah. um, I think it's fascinating. You know, I think mm-hmm. there's something there. We should definitely riff on maybe mm-hmm. another session, not on the podcast, yeah. where what are some other, you know, previously just accepted things that were just locked up in the B2B world that would mm-hmm. be insanely cool for a regular people to access that that was robin hood by the way right yeah robin hood was for the longest time it was i, w- I don't think it was b2b per se but it was more so like you know not it, w- it was a prosumer thing yeah. right trading mm-hmm. stocks was a prosumer thing like i have a joe mm-hmm. like me and my wife or you know someone like some kid in the college couldn't simply open up a brokerage account like that back in the day mm-hmm. and now robin hood just made it you know democratize that access so yeah um, i love you also that wrote a blog post about fractionalized everything don't you didn't yeah. you yeah, yeah. I think that it has to be. And I think that if the startups can do that would be even amazing. And some yeah. of this is legal stuff, right? It's like political, where if you fractionalize startups for real, it actually becomes a security, right? And it's like a challenge yeah. with that, right? right? And so there's, there needs to be ways where companies can be essentially go public easier, right? Mm-hmm. And so all of those things, whether the democratizing of startups, where it's easier for anyone to start a startup, I think there's so much 
monetization that can be done in healthcare, where you mm-hmm. take things that, like even biotech, or like it used to be a very B two B focused biotech. It's like you have the only way you can sell biotech is through big pharma, and mm-hmm. you have to you, sometimes you have to sell to the big company, and then the big company does the distribution, almost in like the old school Hollywood model or the old school uh, music model, right? And so there's right. now ways where I think if there's an increasing consumerization in biotech, then you'll also see more a different kind of startup be created. So scientist CEO that actually needs to understand the consumer approach uh, versus the biotech CEO who is the regulatory expert. Uh, right. And that's a different model. And so if we can kind of bet on the 2.0 biotech founders looking different and being different, uh, that's also really fun. You know, you so you, you talked about scientist CEO, right? And I feel like that's mm-hmm. the identity that you obviously embody and it's close to your heart. Would you cl- classify your dad as scientist CEO? Because he had a PhD, yeah. he built his own first company, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. And I wonder, like, how much of watching him be an entrepreneur and also doing it the bootstrap way, which is often like, you know, the scenic route, right? It's never the mm-hmm. get the funding and get to tech, tech crunch route. How much of that really do you believe parlayed into how you view businesses and startups in general today? I think it's both bootstrapping and VC both have pros and cons that uh, we, I think, miss one or the other right like there are people who are just all in on bootstrapping and there's people who are all in on vc and they each speak their own book (laughs) and i've kind of seen so i saw the both the positives and the downsides of bootstrapping for my dad right it like Mm -hmm. really worked for you know almost two decades until it really didn't work Mm -hmm. right and there we talked about that there was a even if i had you know had i been a few years older and i understood what i knew about vc now then could he have gone and raised like a bridge round funding that could Mm -hmm. have helped him get through that and then that hundred million dollar business could have still gotten out there's ways where vc can be very valuable right and then like there's a difference in like a vc might not have dropped the business in that spot in the same way that a bank did and so that's those are the negatives there i think that there are negatives in on the vc route where people who raise way too much money and then they're they basically lose their exits there's a great reddit post recently where someone said they're going from zero to a hundred million to zero yeah right and right and the and a big part of that is actually that you go from zero to let's say 10 million or 20 million in value and that and you bootstrap or you you know do just a seed round to get there and that part is very difficult and then companies will end up going and raising one two three four five rounds after that and those were less necessary and then you might need to exit at 200 300 400 yeah. million dollars to get the same equity per founder as you would if you just raise a seed round and exited at a 20 or 30 million dollar value Right. This, you know, kind of leads me to open up about so middle stance, right? You talked about middle yep. stance, which is a, I think, fun German word. I just mm-hmm. can't get it out of my head. Actually, I want you to kind of introduce what middle stance are for the audience and why do you believe those are necessary or what kind of role they do, they, do you think they play in the startup world? Yeah. So the kind of German definition for middle stand is this almost like family uh, owned business that generally scales to you know, 10 million plus in revenue to a billion in revenue uh, usually is very stable often is either like passed down generationally or can even be employee owned right mm-hmm. in the UK especially there's a, a stronger employee ownership culture uh, and so is that's like one a co-op of, kind of thing like almost, yeah so co-ops are mm-hmm. are a, more of a UK structure I would love to see more of those type of structures come to the US like US is very structured it's like either it's a non-profit it's a C-Corp it's an LLC mm-hmm. and there's kind of no in between and so I think there's more room for those types of things. And so the middle stand is this like a middle class of startups. It's this middle class business in the sense that it might make, you know, it might be a $10 million to $100 million 
exited business might not be great for the classic VC. It might be really good for the founder and maybe a few a few set angels. Right. right? If, if you could either raise a million dollars or less in a seed round and exit for 10 million plus or bootstrap it all the way there and even exit for a million plus. Right? Those are both great outcomes that I think the normal startup world misses. And so that I would love to see more people take those middle class shots. And I'm looking for ways to fund that. I think Tiny Capital is kind of is trying to work on this. Com Fund is trying to do this. There's a few places that are doing it more from a hold co or kind of uh, that type of model where you an incubator style model where you're buying these companies and putting them together or private equity style roll ups. But I would love to see a more startup you know, entrepreneurial driven version of middle stands where people like that's what my my dad's company would be a middle stand like the right. company that my dad and I created together was a middle stand those are great businesses and in some ways there's a more repeatable playbook in middle stands where mm. they're often service businesses and so it's really about like doing the work every day every week every month it's a, it's a, they're usually people driven you usually have to have like everyone in the same building so mm. if they're not service businesses they're usually like manufacturing businesses Right. So it's like it's good for the local economy to have more middle stands. And so there's like, it, like Flint, Michigan actually does have a lot of good middle stands around us. Right. There's you've got like bolt and screw companies and like those are the types of things that you don't the, the second, third tier auto suppliers that you never hear about, like are often around these larger manufacturing companies. They're serving our bigger companies. They're serving the community. Uh, they're great employers. And so there's, there's so many of those thousands of them, even in America. Right. Like it, yeah. Every time I drive by something like that, I always like try to like Google what the <laughs> revenue is, right? I'm like one of yeah. those like people who like looks at the, you know, some company name, like there's a factory right next door. And we yeah. like by our street. I'm trying to look at look up like how much revenue there, and it's like 17, 20 million. I'm like, damn, like 17, 20 million. Yeah. And yeah. they're like, so you nobody would recognize them, the name of them, right? And they're yeah. this is a wheel manufacturing company. And exactly. Like, Whoa, just making wheels, making like 20 million. So there's so many of them like that. Your to your point, in every industry, like chemical, rubber, you know, all kinds of things. Yeah. It's fascinating. I think it depends on what you want to do, right? And there might and maybe you can segment your life in different ways, right? So I think if you're optimizing for quality of life in you might also be optimizing for a mission beyond startups, right? So mm -hmm. if you believe that you want to put a million dollars in the bank and then do something that you really wanted to do your whole life, or, mm -hmm. you know, and it might not be more than one to $10 million to like free you for life on like, yeah. you get to do your mission. And yeah, just like, right. And that could be you know, anything from like traveling the world to starting a church, to starting a nonprofit, to running for politics, to like any of these things. If that's what you really want to do, then a middle stand might be the best way to <laughs> pay sprint five, 10, 15 years exit and then the rest of your life is whatever you want. So I think in that case, I think we're leaving like a great opportunity that's good for founders on the table. Yeah. You know, you touched on politics, so I have to ask you this. I feel like in the tech world, I feel like there's a whole disdain around politics, right? It's kind of like, yeah. you know, I guess now maybe they're taking a little bit of interest. I see like David Sachs and, you know, some of the all, all, uh, all in crew are a lot more political than I guess an average tech leader. But what is your stance on how should people in tech and startups see politics? You know, what lens should they, you know, see in? And number two, like, what are your, I guess, what's overrated about politics and what's underrated about politics? Interesting. I think the lens that we classically see through politics is the cynical lens, yeah. right? It's the, <laughs> it, you're, you're throwing Lying politician, from... right? Becomes like, yeah, like it's like uh, just you're booing. It's yeah. just it's a it's a negative experience, right? And it's just like all politicians are evil. Government mm. is bad, and I think that that defeatist structure, I think, is 
what it causes us in Silicon Valley to actually make a lot less impact on politics than we should, right? Mm. Is if we actually turn that around and and used an ambitious optimist lens. And that's one, mm. of, one of my blog posts is like, we both want to be ambitious and optimistic in politics because I think that there's a lot of ambitious cynics in politics, right? Yeah. And that that's what really kind of drives most of our political system now. But I think that or there's also... Armchair, or, or armchair optimists. They're not like, you know, doing, exactly. doing anything. They're just like opinionated, you know? Um, exactly. And so yeah, I, I think yeah. we're, we're hitting it from both sides. Whereas like the optimists tend to be the, on the sidelines and the cynics tend to be in the arena, mm -hmm. right? And so it was like pushing the optimists into the arena and more of the entrepreneurs into the arena too, because I think it's a very similar skill. And so like to complete the story about my dad, right? So after we sold the business that he and I created together and I was working on Labdoor, he decided in his retirement that he was going to run for politics. And mm -hmm. so he's now run for three straight races. He lost the first one, but won the next two. Uh, and it's now a U.S. congressman uh, representing Detroit. And so in that process through these three races we end up running he's i mean he's been an entrepreneur his whole life that's a way we think about it is like the campaign is almost like a startup business built around a yes. person it's, a, it's right. a brand built around a person. And right. so everything is around that person. So it's whether it's the like the daily social media on like, what do we what do we really want to convey on a daily basis? Like, what do we want to do? And a huge part of that, it builds around what he does. So like he has a very like populist, like in the streets, talking to people one on one kind of connection. And so that's what he does. He goes to like the Allen Park, like town hall festival, you know, and like there's like the Lincoln Park Festival the next day. And he's just like every day he's at another thing or he's at the local churches on Sunday and he might do like three, four, five churches on one on an individual Sunday. Like, wow. and he's just like going to the different places. And so then the like social media is built around that. And then the marketing is built around that. And then when you start talking to reporters, like the reporters see that and you like invite them on the trips. So, and you build this whole system around it to where you can now be more efficient with your work and you can actually promote things better. And then that can, that's po the politics side of it. And then I think the, the next side of it is like, once you actually win the elections, then there's the government side of it. And I also think in the government side, there's a lot of low hanging fruit, which I think like a lot of the overrated things happening right now is trying to, it's like the famous Sun Tzu quote is like, generals are always busy fighting the last battle, mm, right? Yeah. Right. And it's like politics, like we're still fighting the, like the Trump battle. Like we're yeah. still in that system. The we're, 2020 we're, thing has passed already, right? Yeah. Yeah. 1620. And like we're in 24, I think we're going to probably have one more Trump election, right? And so <laughs> like we're still fighting that last battle versus if we thought about maybe what's next and these things happen in cycles is like, where's the next Obama? Where's the next like ambitious optimist who's going to come in and actually take the wave in the other direction? And really not just from that optimistic perspective, but actually getting things done, right? It's like passing major legislation. And that's something that I love about politics too, is there's a lot of low hanging fruit that's actually 80, 90% populist issues. The problem is that in the less than 10% are the moneyed interests on both sides, mm. right? And so if the issue is silent and only the money talks, then the bills will pass to the benefit of the 10% or the 1%. Mm. But there's, if you get loud, if you like strategically get loud and actually publicize the issues and get them done, you can actually rally support in a way where you get that 80, 90% on your side. And basically the moneyed interest can't do anything about it. And so there's just this great lane now for ambitious optimists to pick key issues, focus on them, get them passed and keep people and getting key people in office and helping that process. If you could wave a magic wand and, you know, get to a scenario where you really get to define or you let's say this is hypothetical, obviously, right? If you could design the perfect precedent for the United States, what traits would that person have looking into the future? 
Hmm. I think that there would be a very direct way of speaking, right? I think that the focus should be about tactics and execution and not about politics. Mm. And so I think there's a lane right now for an ideal president who really focuses on getting things done. And I hope that this is not crisis induced. Usually this like FDR, you get like a, a very uh, active president because there was a crisis or a great depression. Right. But I think there would be a great lane for a, a politician to come in and say like we're not fighting we're not like talking about republicans versus democrats we're just going to get as much done as possible in the two terms that i'm president and right and do all of this work and it's just going to be a sprint and we're going to like work on with both with all sides we're going to work with activists and with politicians i think all of that bringing that together is really key i think the ideal president also has been working as an activist for a long time mm -hmm. i think that there's this like interesting wait, wait why do you believe that so i have this idea of uh like the same way there's founders and ceos and like the founders like create things and the CEOs manage things and often they're the same person at the beginning but then mm -hmm. later and it can diverge I think in similar ways there's like activism comes before politics like wow. there are issues that when I talk about something that's an 80-90% issue maybe something like gay marriage might be an 80-90% issue now but you know 20 years ago it wasn't 40 years ago it wasn't mm -hmm. and so the activist job is to change the percentage right it's like make it an 80-90% popular issue by promoting it to people and then the politicians kind of take it over the finish line and they actually make it law. And so I think uh, Barack Obama was a community organizer. He was an activist like at the grassroots level and kind of understood what those problems were. And so I think being having some of that experience and being on the front lines helps you when you later on go at the end of the, the system and are trying to get things done. Right. Groundwork first and then office work, right? Yeah, I think um, it matters. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, just to throw in like my, I guess, a couple things that I would probably chime in about who, who would be an ideal. I think to me, this direct line of communication thing that you talked about is fascinating because I feel like often, you know, some of these, I guess, let's looking at the democratic, you know, side of it. I feel like they're um, to try to appease to both sides and try to, you know, build a big tent, which is, you know, like the whole focus. I don't think they take strong stances and it's okay sometimes to take a strong stance because mm -hmm. as long as it's, it's a very populist or, pop, mm -hmm. you know, it's a, it's a very popular opinion you know, of mm -hmm. the common public. I think that's something mm -hmm. um, I feel like Obama was towards the end not doing. You know, Hassan Minaj recently addressed that. He saw that video yeah. where he was saying, I wish, like, I wish you just said something about, you know, when you saw this or something like that. And, and I think um, being a little bit more assertive would have been helpful. So to me, like having that kind of conviction about what you believe in, communicating it, with only a tiny caveat that I could be wrong. Those are to mm -hmm. me very inspiring, right? You could see you're just still being extremely confident. 95% that this is what I believe is what America needs. 5% I could be wrong. And I'm ready to change my mind later, right? Then yeah. you create the sense of momentum towards action because they're like, oh, we know what this president wants and gets done. And okay, and he may course correct later, right? And the other thing, obviously, to your point, like just having that ambition. I feel like America, one of the things that I loved growing up in India, is, as you know, is that America is a magnet for ambitious people. Mm -hmm. And it's just, the, it's just the greatest stage, world's greatest stage, world's greatest arena for ambition. Like if you want to put people in Mars, you know, if you want to put people on the moon, like this is the mm -hmm. place, right? Yeah. I think like even that language I feel like is missing in our common political landscape right now. Like most of us, most of them are playing safe, trying to appease to those money interests, like I said, mm -hmm. unless maybe you have a crisis and then you'll have someone rise up, but you don't need a crisis to galvanize the nation. You know, you just need someone to have the kind of ambition to look 10, 15, 20 years ahead and say, that's where we want to be. Also, like my, this is my personal talk. I feel like there's so much reactive 
leadership as opposed to just proactive leadership. Like everybody, yep. I feel like in, you know, uh, in, in the White House or at least, you know, in political spheres is so reacting to what China is doing, what Taiwan is doing. I'm like, who cares? You know, the real mm-hmm. pioneers don't give a shit about like Michael Phelps. Remember that mm-hmm. whole scene where, you know, when he's like trying to be number one, he doesn't look around. He just mm-hmm. wants to be number one. Right. Yeah. And I feel like there's the last few years, I'm like, every time I see TV, I'm like, oh, they're so reacting to what China is doing, what they might be doing. I'm like, just be pioneers, which I think that's in the DNA of being American. Yeah, Um, I think that's something that's missing in politics in general. And I and that's, I think, the the thing that you'd worry about with like with an Obama or like uh, some other great politicians that we've had in the last couple of generations where it's like the famous Steve Jobs quote about like the like life is is much different when you realize that everything that was built around you was like created by people who were no smarter than you yes. right and you can change it and mold it and like like that's I think we haven't had that realization in politics it's like mm. everything all these like a lot of these bills might have only gotten passed like five years ago or ten years ago it, the very very oldest bills are 100, 200, 300 years old right mm. like everything any of that can be changed right like things can be made better we can always kind of there's this thing that happened recently in Pennsylvania where like a bridge collapsed yeah. and then the new governor would like decided to change all the systems just like drop all of the, the classic regulations and just they got this bridge built in like days instead of months mm-hmm. and basically like, everything in government could be like take that microcosm and, and expand it is you can do that if you decide that like all the rules are changeable right uh, and so I'm just I'm waiting for more opportunities like that where people just say come in for a four or eight year sprint as a governor or president and just try to get as much done as possible being as open with you know like everything can change everything can move and I think by doing that you get you can make much more progress yeah so Talking about sort of reimagining things and, you know, sort of redefining what future could be. Let's talk about YC. The impact of YC in your career, in your life as a founder. And I know you had some thoughts about YC 2.0, right? Yeah, so absolutely. So walk us through that. Yeah, first, first tell the audience, like, what, what was the role of YC in your life? Yeah, so I think, I mean, like YC, for me, we got into YC in 2015. I think that was a real inflection point in YC where we knew that it was going to be great. And I think the people around us did. But it had just turned from $20,000 checks to $120,000 checks. Right. It was it was kind of in that inflection point in year 10. And what, for us, we had spent two and a half years really struggling trying to figure out the business. And once once we did figure out the business, it was like you plug in YC and it's like the accelerator, it's truly an accelerator. It, and it for like, especially for the next one, two, three years, fundraising got a lot easier. And then like till now, it's like eight plus years later. And it's still like there's a YC reunion coming up. Like you like want to be meeting YC founders constantly. It's a great way to when you're reaching out cold to other people being a YC founder really helps. I think it the the principles that YC created about really kind of sprinting as quickly as possible, especially in that 12-week period, measuring your growth rate in weeks instead of months mm. or years, all of that tradition really helps. I also think the vision of kind of thinking as big as possible is really yeah. great about YC. I love this idea of like, if we're talking about ambition, like YC is the place where, where ambition is really fostered and like it go it bounces off of each other and gets stronger and so that feeling of the like, program has a quote about that where like if you assume that like ambitious people are normally distributed throughout the world at the beginning of their lives like they're generally not going to bump into that many other ambitious people around right. them but like when you finally put those ambitious people together it's like you know it's like a a plant that like finally sees sunlight right it's like starved of light and that finally blooms like that's kind of YC is amazing for that uh, and so i love that model and that like YC stamp of approval is so so key i think what 
Paul Graham did in 2005 with his thesis saying, you know, hackers can be great CEOs mm. and like and really taking something that was revolutionary at the time and now seems so ordinary. I truly and, and believe it's that, important yeah. like there when you say hackers can be good CEOs, hackers at the time were low status. Exactly. Right? They were not like I, can, I guess now when you think of a hacker or developer, it's like high status, right? Someone yeah. working at Stripe or leave Stripe, like I think a thousand pre-seed checks try to get him, right? Yeah. Or him or her. But like 2005, like a hacker trying to you know, create the next web widget is not a mm -hmm. high status thing. Exactly. And so I think that there's a gap now where with the scientist CEO, where I think scientists are still low status in terms of the the management CEO level, right? Yeah. I think there's this this like glass ceiling for scientists where this theory of like, well, scientists can, like, we want hundreds of brilliant scientists in our team, but we can't have one at the top, right? Mm -hmm. Versus what actually is the truth in biotech is a lot of these great companies, the Solugens and Ginkgo Bioworks and, you know, Recursions and Twists, all scientist CEOs, all PhDs who it was their research that really spun everything out, right? And so if we actually give more trust to the scientists, I think there's a huge potential in biotech to right, to accelerate them and help them do zero to one in biotech. But then there's also like scientist CEOs in all these other places that could be mm -hmm. potential. So like AI is a great space where who makes AI companies? They're researchers. They're, they're scientists to some extent. Right. Like some of them are PhDs. They're coming out of universities. Like it, starting to look, AI companies start to look a lot more like biotech companies now, mm -hmm. right? And like the merging of all those in all the cases now we're now getting also platforms like so there's the like open ai chat gpt type mm. platforms and then you're building on top of that then you now get the like application layer of each and that's actually where the like where web 2.0 really flourished was when you got to the application layer and and then there's just so many winners right it's not right. just a few winners of in the platforms there's hundreds of winners and that's really what makes a yc work that's really what makes vc work is when there's just a wide number of winners and so it looks like biotech AI and then the scientist CEOs that are going to be starting those companies is where the next generation of those exits are going to come from. I'm excited to, you know, kind of follow along and, and see all of that unfold. So let's talk about the power of writing in public. I was looking at some of the, you know, posts you made. I've been following, of course, for, for years now. I think at somewhere you said that you have over 100 posts published, yes. over 80,000 words and, you know, it's just prolific. You, the, I remember this was four or five years ago when we first met was through your writing. You know, I think I replied to one of your threads and it was one of the blog posts you wrote that you posted and I replied to it and I slid into your DMs <laughs> and here we are, right, five years later. But what is your, I guess, perspective on the power of writing? Like, first of all, how did you discover that, number one, that the power, first of all, the taste of it? And second, like, what kind of role does it play now in your life? Yeah, so I think I learned all the best investors that I consider like the top VCs that I look up to starting with Paul Graham like there I know them because of their writing and so it's, and that even includes Brad Feld and Fred Wilson and Mark Suster and right, like and Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz through and Ben Horowitz's book and like all these different things that learning the VC industry learning the startup industry came from those blog posts mm -hmm. and so there's this way where like when you're the kind of person who likes self-teaching and like absorbing that information is also like it's a really fertile ground for the type of people who become founders anyways mm. and so I love that concept of trying to like share my ideas and kind of build on them as much as possible I also think that there's a just from a true writing 
as a practice perspective, I think that you have to get so much better at your ideas in order to get it to that finished form. And so I even think about my writing, like if I'm really quickly sketching out an outline, I can, you know, 100 words, 200 words is probably enough for me to like a stop, a first stopping point. And then there's so many other stopping points after that, like 500 words, 1000 words, 2000 words. And then I get to a place where like, a full idea, like one to 2000 words might take me, you know, 10 to 20 hours over the course of a few weeks and in very random times. But it's a practice of one, just like thinking about it from a top down approach. I'm always thinking about like, what is the biggest problem that can be solved? What's the world's biggest problems that can be solved? And so I have this kind of top down system where I'm, I'm always searching for ideas. And then whenever an idea hits hits that it hits one of those big problems then the words come out like it's it's like 500 words can come out really easily and so i just have to like find the ground or find the spark for that and you've been writing for how long now is it 100 posts is it like two years three years four years no so it's been 10 plus years but maybe wow. 30 to 40 of the posts were in the last two so i've wow. like i've gotten to a, a higher pace it definitely was like the first 10 years worth of writing. I also did a lot of writing for Labdoor. So mm -hmm. Labdoor is a, a, another kind of uh, underrated thing about Labdoor is I, we've done over 100 million pages from SEO alone on wow. Labdoor, right? Like it's it's an SEO machine. And so a lot of how we built Labdoor in the early days was some of it was articles, but like even Labdoor as it's built in a structure is like there's Labdoor.com, then every category like protein powders has a ranking and so mm -hmm. like if you're searching best protein powder you'll find the protein rankings if you're searching for like muscle milk reviews you'll find the product and so it's like this hierarchy and everything's built around that and so i really saw the power of seo from labdoor and i think i saw the power of like branding for writing from uh, like paul graham and and all these other vcs and I think that there's this challenge with like proving yourself or like getting in the door that is like, I love this idea of like, and we should talk about this more, like the front door, like YC, one of the things it does really well is it actually, uh, it's a, it makes the front door of VC easy. Like yeah. the front door of VC is usually hard and like you used to have to know people and like, hey, it's my Stanford MBA buddy. And so I know where the door is, but you don't. Right. And like that changed with YC, the front door got easier to find. And so if we kind of change that and think about like, how do you like engineer that and like make it so that the front door is easy to find, that I think is a way you solve some of these big problems. I love that. The, I love how much you, in your speech and your writing, the word ambition shows up. You know, I, I, I was referring earlier this morning to a post of yours called Hidden Ambition, mm -hmm. you know, and I was like, man, it spoke to me, right? And I think it's a great segue to talk about sort of, first of all, what was that in, you know, if you, do you remember what was in that post? There were like a signs about what you thought were, you know, ambition. And I want to parlay that into how we both met. Mm -hmm. That's the, I think the theme that we both uh, really clicked on, right? Ambition. Yeah, so absolutely. yeah, the, what, what was that post about? Hidden ambition. Yeah, I, there's one specific line that actually hit me this morning. I was thinking about it again. So it's a great timing is like, how many dreams end with like, what would my parents think of this? Yeah. Right. It's this idea wow. of we self-censor ourselves. And that's like a big part of hidden ambition is that we don't put our full selves out. We don't say what we really want to do uh, you know, like, because we're afraid that someone's going to make fun of us for being a nerd or a teacher's pet or whatever it is that was ingrained in our head as a little kid. And I think like the process of fighting through that is the way one big way ambitious people help each other when they are together is you normalize ambition. It's like mm -hmm. like actually like being ambitious is good. And like, let's share that and celebrate that. 
And so I think a core part of, I think, what makes me a good investor too, and just like why I like helping founders is because I like looking for that. I like looking for extreme ambition as a signal. And if I can see someone who is like really pushing beyond not just their like the the job that they're in or the startup that they're working on now, but they're thinking in terms of decades and thinking in terms of what's the max potential that they could have. Uh, that excites me. And so I think when the first time you reached out and when I read your stuff, I think at the time you, I mean, now you have tens of thousands of followers. I think you had maybe a thousand. Uh, yeah, or, that's a thousand, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so I think that like. Also, I think at the time I was a Delta Airlines fan. I was not even an on deck. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. And so I think there's something to be said for like, you can see that ambition in people. And like the, the it's like a game record recognized game thing. It's like the people mm. who are also like that is like, oh, he's like you. It's like you're starved of that. Like you're so ambitious and you're like looking for other people who are ambitious like you. And like when you meet other people like that, it's, it pumps you up and then you want to like you need that energy all the time. Mm. Right. And so I think we talk and that's like a big thing about how we talk is like we're trying to pump each other up. And it's like, you know, you can do better. You can do bigger like and back and forth. And that's like that's a, a huge strength in life. And I think and that's YC the whole does, belief capital thing, too. Right. We talked. We, we I talked loved about... your post on belief capital. I think you were one of the first people that sort of really embodied that for me, you know, mm -hmm. and, and later Eric Thunberg did that, you know, when I joined on deck and, and a few others did that. I think uh, like so many people like, you know, like they infuse it. But I feel like with you, I was stunned when you first, um, you know, responded. I think we jumped on a quick call. I remember actually I was screenshotting that first DM exchange we both had for mm -hmm. the BIPF cohort about something about being proactive, you know, because mm -hmm. I was just sh telling them like, if you like someone, if you resonate with their tweets and content or ambition or whatever, just DM them, right? Like they're all, they're looking for you too. Mm -hmm. It's not as, you know, it's not just a one-way thing. They're also looking, which is, which in our DM exchange, I'll try to put that screenshot in the, in the show notes here. In our DM exchange, you immediately responded and you left your phone number there, which is, you know, crazy <laughs> to think about. But I remember on that call, like, I feel like one thing every time I talk to you, and it started with that call, that you kind of raise the ceiling of what I thought was possible for me, you know? And it's, it's a belief capital thing, right? You kind of were investing that belief and saying, no, KP, you can do this. You know, this is possible. What happens, I think, with a lot of ambitious people, if you're not raised around other ambitious people, which is, I think, a lot of people are, you know, I grew up in a very low-income family and around me, they're very normal, you know, ordinary, happy and loving people, but they're by no definition ambitious, right? They're scared of even leaving a nine-to-five job. So what happens is, like, anytime you have a little bit of a creative leap, you're faced with this bully you know which is mm -hmm. the inner resistance the demon in your your brain that's saying oh no what if you fail or no what if you suck or no what if people judge you etc cetera, etc cetera. which ironically to your point earlier it doesn't exist you know when you were born from zero to three or four years old my son neil is two and a half years old he doesn't have any bullies in his head <laughs> right he doesn't even know yeah. the concept of resistance yeah but to your point in that essay you were writing uh you, you were saying that when you go to school then you get you know, you get picked on because you were a nerd, you were obsessed about something, or you're too curious about something. And then uh, you internalize that, oh, maybe maybe I should not be this curious about something, right? But it's mm -hmm. weird because all of the life's greatest success comes from actually being obsessed for decades, right? Yeah. You know, like if, if you want to go to Mars, you have to be obsessed for 30 years, you know, to make sure, you know, you, you get all the pieces of the space, you know, SpaceX thing, right? So mm. I think all the reward in life all of the uh, results and outcomes in life are usually given to the obsessed and the curious, I feel. But mm -hmm. because of the fact that we are raised through uh, the high school and the college systems, we have this bully inside of us that's kind of pushing back our ambition and kind of like keeping us in our place. And so when I first met you, you were helping me kind of fight that bully. 
And even recently when we reconnected, you know, when you were doing your thing and we reconnected and I was like, wow, Neil's so good at this. He's so good at, you know, giving other people belief capital, which is something I pride myself too, but it's hard for me yeah. to give to myself. Yeah, I think you, everyone's got to find it in, in people, right? I think that there's a strength to that. And I think that's that's why I reached out to you and like want to work with you, right? Is that that idea is the people who believe at the earliest stages that that's the, we always remember that. You always remember the first yes. investors. Yes. Right? You always remember the, the first advisor. Like those people really matter. And it's funny because you, 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 even, you even talked about rock health and you never talked about yeah. the growth stage investors. <laughs> I promise right. you they put more money in it, right? Yeah, I mean, yes, right. There's, we had million dollar checks, right? And I, I think, and I feel like it's been great too, right? And like our series A leads have been good too, right? But I think you do, like, there's a challenge in that first check, right? Where it's like, there was no, like, we were in Indianapolis at the time. Like, they reached out through AngelList. Like, we were able to, we flew out to San Francisco. We did an interview. Like, we didn't know whether we were going to, like, move or not. Like, we had basically promised ourselves as co-founders, like, we're moving to San Francisco either way. We need, like, we need to figure out fundraising. And then, you know, the same day, it was like, they interviewed us. We, a few hours later, they told us we were in and then we were like planning to move and so like that that we i remember that like the 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 difficulty of kind of of what we knew or like how little that they knew about us and they were really just believing in a team uh, and believing in an idea and so if there are more people like that like there should be more investors like that i think there's so much ambition around these like being the next Y Combinator in terms of like competing with the current Y Combinator. So there's like so many people trying to write the $500,000 checks or the million dollar checks. And they're, I, they're just leaving a lane wide open to do the original YC. It's like, who's going to write 20,000, 50,000, 100,000 dollar right. checks? And so I think you also touched on the one to end thing, right? YC is more of a accelerator, true accelerator. Yeah. Once you figured out like the business model and you kind of navigated through the idea maze and you're at a point where you're like, okay, I'm ready to kind of put some gas, put some gasoline on this and kind of like really accelerate it. Yeah. I feel like that's where YC really shines in my view. Yep. But that, you know, and also now there's eight or nine of them that are trying to do the same thing, right? Yeah. With the same sign of check size too. I think the magic sauce, I know we both align on this, is, is that we believe in the zero to one phase, mm -hmm. you know, and it's very clunky and messy because there's really clear, no clear outcome. Like you can't really sell that to city say investors yet or seed, you know, seed investors. There's no demo day as such because like some company or some founder could spend eight months in the idea maze and not have anything to show. Yeah, that would not exist. Like, you know, that would not happen in the one to end stage. Yeah. Right? And so that and that's why see can be good at that. Right. And for the reason that and they used to be even better, I think, of this, like forcing you to change or like trying to convince you to change is like, what's the most ambitious thing you could can you pivot like the pivot in during the YC class, like some people have pivoted to totally different ideas yeah. in the YC yeah. class. Um, and so I'm, I appreciate you're on the that. clock, though. I think that the, my challenge, I mean, I, I'm, yeah. I could be wrong, but I feel like yeah. the 12 weeks thing is a clock that's ticking. Yeah. You know? And yeah. so it's so much pressure to then think about idea maze because idea maze is like best. I feel like it's best done when you're not under crazy pressure like that. You're really kind of exploring, you know, like, OK, what do I feel like I want to spend the next 10 years? It's a pretty big decision. You know, yeah. and you may want to talk to 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 people, you know, in the problem space to really think that, OK, I'm going to take a jump into this for the next 10 years and you can't like maybe you can do one pivot but you can't do five pivots but in the idea yeah. maze idea maze stage i think you can do eight pivots 10 pivots and be okay mm -hmm. right yeah and so i'm trying to figure out more of that i think there's a gap there between the what i wrote about it, i called it a founder accelerator right yeah. it's like if there was a teal fellowship for people over 23 right <laughs> yeah. it's like there's, that yeah, why, why isn't there one uh, can i also like that see first of all i felt that when i i think i came across teal fellowship much later in my life you know because i was mm -hmm. 23 when i moved to america so i would have been by default disqualified from that and i'm like 
does Peter Scale know how hard it was for me to even fucking come to the starting line? Yeah. Like, are you kidding me? Like, to come yeah. to the starting line, I had to go through, you know, so yeah. much shit in my life. You know, how many yeah. lower income kids can make it to America from India, you know, to come to the starting line and then you're disqualified because of age. I'm like, what the heck is that? Yeah, I, 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 I didn't I didn't know about it until later, too. I think yeah, the... Like, I think it's interesting to think about. I think Silicon Valley over-indexes on age. You, 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 you yeah. know this. Like, I'm like, what is, what is the glory about 18-year-old? I don't get it, you know? Yeah, I think that's a, it's go, going away a little bit. It goes in waves, too, right? I think that there's a challenge of the every new generation when I think startups get hotter, you probably get younger kids coming in, like, right out of college. And I think as it gets harder, it, like, maybe now, like, in 2023, 24, the, like, people who are, like, restarting, like, a new starting companies now uh, might be... I might guess might be older. Uh, and so I'm curious about how that, how those trends I operate. The hype cycle is mostly proportional to the age, right? The more the hype, the younger you get. You know, I think so. Oh, that would be my guess. I, I don't think it's necessarily good or bad. I like, like young founders are good. Older founders are good. It's not like, I, yeah, I think it's the bias of like younger is necessarily better that I'm trying to get around. Yeah. Because I've, I've seen it everywhere. Yeah, I'm like, TechCrunch makes an article like, oh, 16-year-old, 16-year-old, I don't know, like, builds the crypto app. I'm like, I mean, so what? Like, how is that? It's the same thing, like, you know, a woman makes a crypto app. I'm like, okay, are you saying that they, you know, they should not be making or what? Like, so mm -hmm. I think, uh, I, I don't know, I just found that, to your, back to Seal Fellowship, like, I thought the 23 mark was a little bit arbitrary. I think from his lens, maybe when it was, in, you know, the inception of that was to get people to stop going to work for big tech, maybe. Yeah. You know, like to stop going to college. Right? His yeah. real oh. idea was to get people to not go to college. Okay, okay, gotcha. Which is like, so he was almost like solving a separate problem. Whereas, like, yeah, versus the solution, or like, there's a meta solution here, which is actually the what I call the money problem, which is like the number one problem in the world's biggest problems list. Is that there's a gap between like what you're doing now and what you could be doing in your most ambitious self, mm. and that gap might only be fifty or hundred thousand dollars, right? Wow. It's like in some cases it's less. Like someone might quit their job if they had ten thousand dollars in the bank, or if even they if they had guaranteed healthcare, they might yeah. quit their job, right? It's yeah. like that's the only gap is their healthcare. And so if you can actually solve like universal healthcare solves that problem, right? And so like right. there might just be thousands of new founders that are unlocked just because of healthcare. Like now if you say there should be ten thousand or fifty thousand or hundred thousand dollar checks should be more available, now you unlock another class of founders. And so it's like where are the extra like the marginal founders? Like how can we make more founders? That's something that is really important to me personally is like a mission is like how do we help anyone who wants to be as ambitious whether if it's they want to be a great founder like how do we make the front door the on-ramp to mm -hmm. being a founder as simple as possible not to make like startups are never going to be easy it's just about making like finding the front door easy yeah. because otherwise you get a bias in who even starts and right. then like and then everything after that in the entire industry is biased after that right right and so i think that there's so much of a it keeps coming back to making a better front door easier front door right on ramps a lot of on ramps i think yeah. you know to me i remember the days where i was like stuck in this you know uh, delta airlines or i was like at uh, anthem health insurance after that during the covid times and then finally from there i went to on deck you know yeah and once i went to on deck everything became easier infinitely easier the same talent the same iq the same person now valued infinitely more because i think now i'm able to exercise my high agency which i was not mm -hmm. able to do in a corporate company that had 18 layers of bureaucracy mm -hmm. for anything to get done Mm -hmm. Right. And at on deck, I could move it, you know, at super fast pace, you know, because mm -hmm. there was literally it was my division. I could run it the way I wanted, you know, and the high agency thing, along with 
you know, some of these problems that required, you know, like creative thinking, you know, which mm -hmm. I think in some of the big corporates don't need that, right? You can just coast yeah. and it's okay to coast because they are part of a, you know, 80,000 person company. So going back to one thing you said earlier, the on-ramps are key. And one of the things that I found to be super helpful, and I wish, you know, we, we do that to a lot of aspiring founders is that there is a slight difference between aspiring founders and ambitious founders. And I think we touched on this once mm -hmm. in my phone call with you. I, when I came to America in 2011, I was an aspiring founder, but I was not an ambitious founder mm. because an ambitious founder talks about things like, I'm going to get a first round of investment or no, things that are actually ambitious, or I'm going to build a 10 year old company. I'm going to think in decades. All of these are ambitious language. Mm -hmm. Aspiring founders, I think they're talking about like, do I, they're wondering even like the basic shit, like, am I even cut out to be a founder? Mm -hmm. Like, am I even a good leader? Or I don't even know how to hire people. Like, how do I do a hiring call? Like all these mm -hmm. bullshit, basic things that mm -hmm. both of us have passed through easily. But I remember the times when I was stuck in the aspiring founder, what would have taken for me to go from that to here? And I thought at the time that I needed to be smarter, right? Mm -hmm. There's something about reading books or something, or I needed to be like more intelligent, Actually, I think the, the, to me, the difference between aspiring and ambitious is that you just need to be around other ambitious mm -hmm. founders. That's it. Yeah. yeah. And you know, like, so it kind of, it's a contagious thing. You know, the more you hang out with other ambitious founders, the more you become an ambitious person, you mm -hmm. know? So I think that's where community plays a role. Like who do you think is your five to 10 people that you can count on plays a big role there? Yeah, I think it's a huge thing. And I think the ambition bouncing off each other, I think matters. I think the aspiring part of it it's so for me, like I got forced into it by a crisis. Like, it was like my dad lost his business, so I had to be a founder. But I had been thinking about it, being a founder my whole life. I think yeah. like that was always an it was always an aspiration for mine. And it like immediately, yeah, I was forced from flipping from from aspiring to ambitious very quickly because I was just I needed to work on it. I think that so that's one of the challenges. And so I think one of the things that I would love to see more founders do is just more projects. It's like build in public. Yeah, if you almost like change the idea of like startup because becomes like such a it's aspirational because it feels so big yeah it's like oh a startup is such this big thing it was like a, a project is basically it can turn into you know, a startup so the, you know so i was this is i talk about this to our uh, fellows at the bipf too is that when i've had my first startup this is my fifth attempt mm -hmm. as a startup slash company my first startup i spent i think two months trying to get the logo right trying to get the domain right, trying to get the business cards right i remember printing out business cards and walking around i had zero dollars in sales eight months at zero dollars in sales, but I was doing all this like investment into, mm -hmm. you know, like collateral, marketing, website, GoDaddy and all this bullshit. Mm -hmm. With BIPF, I went from idea to Google Doc MVP in like one day yeah. and went from mm -hmm. one to like, I think 10K revenue in like one week. And yeah. I still, it's like eight months now, I still don't have business cards. So I think yeah. this is what it means to be an ambitious founder. So the younger KP, when he hangs out with someone like me now, realizes that, oh, that's all BS. You don't need mm -hmm. all that. You need a customer to have a business. Yeah. I think there's at least a million founders in the world right now, as we speak, because the world is 8 billion people who are in the aspirational stage, Neil, who just need to know this fact and believe it, that you don't need any of that BS. You just need a customer. Like one paid yeah. customer makes you a real business person. Until then, you're yeah. in the aspiring, you know, bucket. But yeah. they don't know this, actually, you know? Or they're listening everything to is built around that, too. Right? There's, like, even, like, it's, like, should I get a co-founder? Yeah. It's also built around, like, just do a project, and maybe the person you do a project with will eventually be a co-founder. Right. And there's so many things where I'm, like, oh, wow, this those things used to take months for me, you know, to get around. Mm -hmm. Like, also, like, how do I, do I learn to code? Like, no, now you can use no code, right? Or AI, mm -hmm. you know? And so there's so many, it's this whole, like, perfectionism syndrome that gets a lot of people, you know, sitting in the sidelines. And I think 
that's one of the reasons why I love to build in public. I love the fact that you are sharing as much as you can in public as well, because I want, you know, like ideas to me are like magnets when you publish online, mm-hmm. right? Because they yeah, attract absolutely. other kind of people who believe in the same. Yeah, it's hard for me too, because I think when I'm trying to think about all these different, I'm talking about startups and politics and trying to connect the two, I think that there's there's a unique lane there. It's like interesting. I think it's a valuable thing where not that many people are talking about it, but it's also, it becomes that calling card where I want to find other people who are like that. It's like a selection thing where by like writing, I think there's this same thing that happens with startups happens with writing too, where people are just like, oh, I want like my first blog post or my 10th blog post to go viral and it's like it's not really about that it's actually about like there's 100 plus blog posts there and like different people know me for different blog posts or like there's a few that they really liked and it's different for different people but they like it has a direct connection to like i like i've clearly thought deeper about this than many other people and so i have like a proof of work like from a a crypto term right is like like i clearly like worked and thought through Mm -hmm. these ideas at a really deep level and so we can like start at a much uh, higher level when we get into something and so that's what i've been like trying to do that as much as possible of just like and just like sharing all the information for free and just like pulling people in that way is just that's the only way to succeed i think it's like we talked about it's like building in public's like that was like thinking in public right Right. there's like another way to do it is like if you really kind of like building your brand in public or like you as a person are going public not just your business uh, that's like really exciting and it's something that like i think we can talk about a lot more too yeah that's the path i'm on is is i think after you know all my Twitter journey now, I'm like, okay, I think I'm at a point where I just want to be me in public, you know, like share all my curiosities and, and obsessions. I've been encouraging our fellows to do that a lot is because and often when they tell me why they can't do it, it's usually this bully. And the bully is the mm-hmm. resistance and the resistance is usually somebody else's judgment, which you actually don't care for. Right. And so yeah, it's fascinating. So I've been a lot more intentional, you know, this year to like completely be me, like whatever weird, deep obsessions that I have about whatever topic that is, just put it out there. You know, and they're like yeah. uh, recruiting agents to bring the kind of people into the orbit, you know. Yeah. Anyway, so we could go for hours, as you know. What is the next exciting thing, you know, that's top of mind for you? What are you looking forward to this year? And then we can talk about where can people find you. Yeah, absolutely. I think I've been really focused on the future of investing. And so how do we get fast first checks to founders? How do we support scientist CEOs? I think biotech 2.0 is extremely exciting now. And so I've been writing a lot about that. So I had a whole series on the future of biotech and how it has this great historical analogy to tech, Mm. where I think tech 20, 30 years ago had a breakthrough after 20, 30 years prior to that, where there was all this building phase that had happened, right? And so you needed all the hardware and platforms to be built before we got Web 2.0 and we got all the things that we got now. And I think the same thing is kind of happening finally in biotech, where we're finally starting to get the platforms, we're starting to get AI and software impacting biotech and chemistry now. And so the future is a lot of uh, new startups that are led by scientists, CEOs in biotech and deep tech and AI. So I would love to support more scientist CEOs. And then I'm going to continue to write. I'm going to keep writing the world's biggest problems and keep helping founders. So the, That's what I, I love. Like you talked about the book on the blog. Like, Do you have a deadline on the book? Is this happening right now yeah. as you speak? So I'm writing it as we speak. So it's like worldsbiggestproblems.com. I've been writing it probably for three or four years now at this point. Nice. It's about 30% done. I mean, I absolutely believe that, you know, in a 
decade long process <laughs> that it is going to be an uh, my magnus opus you know like it's like very very important to me mm-hmm. like i want it to be a best selling book and the kind of like key thing that like people put on their shelves and say like flip to a page and like hey could i solve this problem today mm-hmm. right like i want it to be that reference or that encyclopedia for the biggest problems and so yeah i don't think about yeah, it but even like, that is so ambitious <laughs> i love that <laughs> like who's writing a book yeah. for a decade you know i don't know when anyone actively thinking thinking like that i I think the only way that it works is to do it in public yeah. is like for such a long journey. If I was just doing it and putting it into my files in in some Google doc somewhere, it wouldn't be fun. Yeah. But the fact that like now I've got hundred solutions, 20 problems. So it'll be 120 chapters. We've got 36 done. So it's like right at 30%. <laughs> right. So I'm like moving through this process, but like through those, like those blogs have, some of them have gone viral. Some of them have become people's favorite blog posts. Mm. I'm getting connections in in politics. I'm like, t- some of these things are starting to become bill ideas and I can share them as bills. Right. I start thinking about in that term of like, if I'm writing about politics, could this link be shared from like one congressman to another and could like explain the idea in a way that it could be a bill or like if i wrote this startup idea or like this is how a vc fund should operate Mm. like someone could take that idea and could actually create the startup based on it or they could find that the startup already exists and so the process of writing that whole book in public has just like so much fun Mm. and then also has led me to connect with so many cool people that's awesome i'm wishing you well in that one i mean i I know we're going or stay in touch you know but where do you want to what's the url you want to you know plug at the end where do you want people to follow you online yeah so all of my articles are at neilthanadar.com the world's biggest problems book is world's biggest problems.com and then i'm on twitter at neilthanadar if you've read any of these posts you like the world's biggest problems if there's a specific problem you're working on let me know if you want to debate and like one of the problems or solutions should be higher up. I love talking about that. That's like my favorite. Like if there's a solution that's not on my list that should be on my list, like let me know. It's the most fun to talk about the world's biggest problems. Swarm his DMs, you know, just go slide into his DMs like I did many years ago. Neil, it's a blast, man. Every time I talk to you, I just get energized. And I know this was like a bit of a formal podcast format, you know, but even then, like you just managed to, you know, make me think about ambition, you know, a lot. So grateful to have you as a friend in my life and grateful that our paths crossed. Thanks to building in public, writing in public. Yeah. And, you know, this is just first chapter, right? Where we have a, you know, multiple decades out of us uh, for both of us. So looking forward to that and staying in touch. Be awesome. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye. Thanks. 